Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of the BreastCancer.org podcast. My name is Jamie DiPolo. I'm the senior editor here at BreastCancer.org, and we have a very special guest today for our podcast. It's Dr. Frank Delacroix, who is co-founder of the Center for Restorative Breast Surgery and the St. Charles Surgical Hospital. He is board certified in plastic and reconstructive surgery, and his pioneering work in microsurgery has made the Center for Restorative Breast Surgery an international leader in the art and the science of breast reconstruction. Construction. He has performed thousands of breast reconstructions on women from around the world. Dr. Delacroix, welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So to start, obviously this podcast is going to be about breast reconstruction, and I know many, many things have um, changed, been learned. What would you say are some of the top things we've learned about breast reconstruction in the last decade? Uh, well, it's all good news, uh, and so that, that really is the takeaway with respect to where we are in the world of breast reconstruction now in 2014. Uh, our listeners can take great comfort in knowing that plastic surgeons and breast surgical oncologists and breast surgeons of all varieties have worked very hard over the last 10 to 20 years to improve outcomes, to make recovery shorter, to allow these types of operations to fit in our busy lifestyles, and so there have been many very important uh, advances. Uh, a few basic uh, points in that regard are that uh, we've learned that the best outcomes uh, start with a cohesive team. And that team uh, includes the oncologist, it includes the radiotherapist, it includes the mastectomy surgeon, and it has to include the plastic surgeons on the front end as well. We know that we need to begin our planning we're talking about mastectomy from that first incision. And so the ultimate goal, when we think like that, is to move from a reconstruction that is just a filler for clothing and to provide balance with the opposing breast to, a, to an outcome that is aesthetically and artistically beautiful. And so that's some of what we've learned about in the last decade, and those are some of the outcomes that have uh, evolved from it. We Additionally, know now that we can we can take tissue from another part of the body and still preserve function in the donor site. We've learned that the donor site itself, when we're talking about a flap type operation, mm-hmm. is as important as the breast reconstruction itself, if not sometimes even more important. Mm-hmm. We've learned that we can preserve the nipple in a great number of instances when we're performing a mastectomy, nipple sparing mastectomy is an evolving science, and there's been great progress in that. And some of the early studies show us that it can be safe in a great number of circumstances when we're talking about an ordinary mastectomy. We've learned that silicone implants aren't dangerous. We've learned that the manufacturers are working very hard to provide products that are more durable, that last longer, that provide a better look and an outcome. Uh, we, 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 We know now that Uh, We can produce results with implants and with flaps that sometimes mimic Mother Nature so closely that in an unclothed state, no one would be the wiser. But it has to start, as I mentioned, from the very first incision with a cohesive team that communicates with one another on a regular basis about each case to provide the proper choice in terms of the modality and to communicate and collaborate with respect to the anticipated course of therapy and the timing for reconstruction 
Often immediate reconstruction provides a better outcome. We've learned that that's, that's applicable in almost every situation. Uh, we've learned that immediate reconstruction with flaps in particular can help mitigate the risk for lymphedema. So we have a lot of things uh, that we've worked very hard to develop, and we just have to do a better, better job getting the information out to the women who need our services. Okay. Um, you were talking about flap surgery, and I know a lot of that is done with microsurgery. Now, until a woman needs reconstruction, probably, um, she it's unlikely that most people have heard of microsurgery. And can you explain to us a little bit what that is and why it's so specialized? And I know on our site, we sort of recommend to people that you, you talk to your potential surgeons and make sure that he or she has a lot of experience with that technique because it, it does require somebody who has quite a bit of experience. Sure. My, microsurgery, when boiled down to its simplest common denominator, is a way for plastic surgeons to move tissue from one part of your body to another. And it is, in its essence, a transplant operation. Only instead of borrowing tissue from a separate donor, we're borrowing tissue from a different spot in your own body. And to facilitate that transplant, we have to collect that tissue, whether it be fat, fat and skin, or any other kind of tissue for that matter, in a way that it brings its own blood supply to the area that we're moving it to. And to do that, we collect this, in the case of breast reconstruction, we collect the skin and fat, whether it be from the tummy or the hip area or sometimes the back. We collect that tissue by dissecting it away from its donor site and bringing with it the little blood vessels that enter its undersurface. And then we're able to move that tissue, connect those blood vessels into the spot where we're recreating the breast, and it has its own blood flow. It has its own life force. It has its own vitality. To accomplish that, we have to use microsurgery. And microsurgery just means small surgery. Oh, okay. And the reason it's small uh, and requires microscopes and special magnifying loops and things of that sort is because the blood vessels that feed and nourish the tissue we're moving are very tiny. And so to dissect them and to bring them out without harming them, we have to use special instruments. We have to use special lighting, special magnification, whether it be a microscope or other. So that we can collect the tissue, its little tiny blood vessel, separate it away from the donor site, close the donor site incision, and bring that composite tissue into the area where we're recreating the new breast, and then manually connect the blood vessels that are associated with the tissue to blood vessels in the donor site. And it requires tiny suture. It's about the caliber of spider web. And so that's where the word microsurgery comes in. It's kind of a fancy word, and it's just a tool at the end of the day. Okay. The reason it's so specialized is primarily because of that. Specialized instruments, specialized magnification, specialized training, and a very delicate, experienced hand that allows those blood vessels to be collected without damaging them, without breaking into them, without squeezing them and producing a tendency towards making a clot, uh, without cutting branches that you need to facilitate the blood flow to the flap. And as a general rule, that requires hundreds, if not thousands, of operations to perfect. Okay. And so there are fewer doctors out there who have gone down that road in terms of training and experience level and basic technical skills than there are who have uh, elected to perform operations that are 
uh, not quite so technically complex and not quite so technically sophisticated. It's a little bit like uh, the analogy of craniofacial surgery or cleft lip and palate surgery uh, to, to any other kind of surgery. It requires a dedicated team that does that every day to carry it out well and to produce a, a nice looking repair of, a, of an infant's lip and things of that nature. Okay. So that's why it's specialized. Those are a couple of the, di- the different reasons uh, that, that, that it is something that isn't for the occasional operator, but in a center where many of these operations are performed and an expert team is on hand, it's a tremendously powerful technical procedure that can deliver outcomes that are otherwise sometimes unachievable. Okay. The ability to, to move uh, fat and tissue around uh, with complete freedom and liberty uh, is, a, is a very significant uh, uh, accomplishment in terms of medical technology. And again, we just really haven't done a very good job educating the public with respect to what that is about and what it can do and when it's most appropriate. Okay. Okay. From your viewpoint, given all the reconstructions you've done, uh, what is the most popular type of breast reconstruction surgery right now, and why do you think that is? It dovetails right from the question you just asked. Oh, The most popular uh, reconstructive procedure is by far implant reconstruction. Okay. It doesn't require a specialized team. It doesn't require years of specialized training, years of over and over uh, thousands of case experience levels. It's an operation that that any graduating plastic surgeon from a residency program should be well-tooled to do in any community setting, anywhere in the nation or the world for that matter. And so that is part of the reason that uh, implant reconstructions outweigh flat reconstructions by nearly five times. Okay. Uh, we know that there were 91,000 breast reconstructive operations in the last year. We know that 71,000 of those were implant operations. Oh, wow. Okay. And there are only 13,000 flap operations. Mm-hmm. But we also know that there were almost 17,000 implant removals. So simpler is not always better. Mm-hmm. Implants are devices, and implants are subject to wear and tear. Implants develop capsular contracture. Implants sometimes break through incisions. Sometimes they get infected. Uh, but there, as a, you know, as a general uh, 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 layperson's concept, it's easy to get your mind around the breast implants. It's, it's a simple concept. And so it has appeal on the consumer side as well mm-hmm. because there's not an incision somewhere else in the body. Sure. Uh, they know someone who had implants for anyone of a different set of reasons. Uh, and so there's a certain uh, a bit of appeal there. It's often uh, uh, conceptualized as a shorter operation, a shorter recovery. Um, implant operations take uh, a couple hours to do, and you're in the hospital a night or so. Flap operations take five to seven, seven hours to do, and you may be in the hospital for two or three nights. Mm-hmm. I tell women that those things won't really help you decide. Those aren't, those aren't deal breakers or deal makers. What you need to think about is, is this the proper procedure for me? Mm-hmm. Uh, what you'll find in the in the, the plastic surgery community, all surgical communities, all, all of medicine, in fact, is that, is that there always will be some biases within the provider. So if they are very good at any one of a different set of things, they often 
will encourage patients to consider that thing because in their hands, that will often provide a reliable and predictable result. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't always mean it's the best choice for the case at hand. And so the fact that implants outweigh flaps by that much uh, tells me that we have a little work to do with respect to educating folks, uh, surgeons and patients, uh, and anyone who would refer to a plastic surgeon when, when one of the other is, 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 is maybe more a proper choice. Don't try to fit the patient to the operation. Fit the operation to the patient. Okay. Okay. And I know you, you talked about some of the things that can go wrong with implants. I know that you correct reconstructions um, that women may be unhappy with. And how I'm wondering how... Do you assess that, or how should a woman assess that, and then how do you decide what to do? Right, so that's a tremendously interesting question. Um, we, we know that there are 300,000 uh, breast, breast uh, cancers that diagnosed every year. Uh, we know that there are some uh, two and a half million women living in the United States post-cancer treatment. Uh, and we know, I know from experience, that a great number of those women have unsatisfactory outcomes with respect to their breast reconstructions. Um, how do we know that a reconstruction is unsatisfactory? Well, it comes from the person who's living with the reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Are they happy with it? Okay. Is it beautiful? Are they happy when they step out of the shower in the morning? Are they comfortable when they're intimate with their partner? Are they in chronic pain? Do they have imbalance? Is one breast wildly different than the other? Symmetry is 90% of the, of the game when, re, when we talk about reconstruction. Okay. And so the, 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 the crux of the question is, how do we assess when someone is not happy or that a reconstruction is insufficient or inadequate when the patient tells us they're not happy with it? And then they define their reasons. And if their reasons meet the measure of the mark with respect to something that we can do something about, then we may have something we can offer to make it better. Okay. And oftentimes that's the case. But women often don't have ready access to the information to know what could be done. And so there are thousands of women living in the United States with either overt disfigurement after reconstruction chronic pain, imbalance, or a result that is far from what it could be. And so, yes, probably half of what I do now are corrective operations for women who've had a, a result from one variety of operation or another in the past that just hasn't met the measure of the mark. Okay. And so when, when we see someone like that, that's a more complicated patient to take care of. It's always best to get it right the first time. When we have a blank palette and we can paint the painting however we choose, that's a lot easier than erasing and trying to apply marks over what's been created already. Mm -hmm. And so to offer a meaningful uh, opportunity for improvement in women like this, it's important that the surgeon who's taking care of them, and this is sort of a unique uh, thing in our practice, at least relative to our region, the surgeon taking care of them has to have every tool available in their toolbox when it comes to what can we do to make it better. They have to be an expert at implant reconstruction. They have to be an expert at using a cellular dermal matrix. 
They have to be an expert at every kind of flap, be it latissimus flap, gluteal flap, perforator flap, tram flap, minor skin flaps, you name it. If you have every tool, fat injection, and the whole gamut at your disposal, then you can look at this situation and you can begin to apply the individual tool that best gives an opportunity to improve it. Okay. I'm curious, too. Um, I know you said that many more implant reconstructions are done than flap or autologous reconstructions. Um, my guess would be that you've corrected all kinds of reconstructions. Um, do you also uh, sometimes correct lumpectomy? Does that ever happen? Or is it pretty much just for mastectomy? No, we, we, we correct lumpectomy. We correct women with Poland syndrome. Okay. Uh, we correct bad implant outcomes. We correct failed flap outcomes. Okay. Uh, lumpectomy, in particular, uh, is an evolving uh, specialty within the specialty. Uh, sometimes that requires a simple flap turned on a small blood vessel to fill in a defect or a divot in the area where the uh, lumpectomy and/or radiation was performed. Very often, after lumpectomy radiation, you know, it's 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 uh, it's written about as a breast conserving operation, but we know on the back end, being in the plastic surgery arena, that lumpectomy and radiation protocols often produce a breast with a divot in it, a breast with a retracted, distorted nipple, a breast that's shrunken compared to the opposing side. Mm-hmm. And so lumpectomy in and of itself is not always terrific in terms of the uh, parentheses conservative idea breast conservation, breast preservation, uh, in some cases, removing the breast may be sidestepping the need for radiation by acquiring clear margins and negative node sampling and a, a straight immediate implant or implant or even flat reconstruction can produce a better outcome than a lumpectomy radiation. Mm-hmm. But we don't talk about that very much. Mm-hmm. So uh, the correction of lumpectomy and things of that nature are on a case-by-case basis. Sometimes, as I mentioned, it requires a very simple little flap. Sometimes... Fat injection can be offered. we got to be careful with that when we're fat injecting in a radiated field. Fat injections require a robust vascularity to work well. Radiation tends to reduce that. I just, requ- I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but when you say robust vascularity, I assume you mean it needs to have a good blood supply. Oh, yes, Correct. exactly. Yeah. So yeah. when we apply fat injections, we need to put it into an area that has strong blood supply okay. because they're just little drops of fat. Okay. And if, the, if, you, if you don't have uh, a ready blood supply in the area that you inject it, it'll just die, melt away, and resort, or drain, or get infected. Okay. So radiated fields are more complicated in that regard, because radiation tends to reduce blood supply to the area it's been uh, 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 applied to. Okay, okay. And kind of following along with that, you touched on this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you have more details. Um, Are there long-term side effects from reconstruction that isn't done well, and you know, I know you you mentioned a few of them, but what? How can how can those be addressed? How do you address those issues? Okay, so long term side effects. Uh, there are so many ways to talk about that question. We could take up six of these <laughs> podcasts. The, all right, then you'll one. have to promise that you come back, and we'll specifically focus on that. Sure. Uh, so long term side effects from a reconstruction that's uh, done poorly. More often than not, it's, it's imbalance, it's asymmetry, or chronic pain. Uh, let's talk about implant reconstruction for just a moment. Uh, we know that capsular contracture is a very common 
side effect after or, or, or follow-up effect after implant reconstructions, upwards of 30% or so. If we apply radiation to the re implant reconstructed breast, it's nearly 100%. So capsular contracture is a tendency for your body to make scar tissue around a device. And in the uh, context of implant reconstruction, it's the implant. And the capsule is scar tissue. And it tends to tighten around the implant, produce a breast that's higher, rounder, sometimes overtly distorted, and often chronically painful. Because so, it's so tight. Right. So okay. chronic pain can be a long-term side effect from implant reconstruction with capsular contracture. Uh, weakness. Uh, we've tried to get away from tram flap operations in as much as we're able in a practical sense within the world of plastic surgery because we know that when a tram is done and we take all of the muscle out of the abdominal wall, that there's going to be a price to pay for that. Mm -hmm. That muscle is there for a reason. Okay. And so with operations that sacrifice muscle tissue, be it a tram flap, a latissimus flap, or any other operation that doesn't just bring skin and fat, but brings muscle along to the party, we have to think about the donor side. And so long-term side effects from an operation that was performed poorly or perfectly that takes muscle tissue can be weakness, hernia formation in the abdomen, bulges and contour irregularities in the tummy donor site. There was a study that just came out last month uh, finally giving a consensus statement about latissimus flap and that yes, lo and behold, it does produce some weakness in the arm after you do it. Mm -hmm. well, that would make sense. In our community, we try, we sort of talk, I know, you'll get along fine with it, you don't need necessarily to worry about that, but that is a huge muscle in your back. Mm -hmm. Again, it's there for a reason. So we have to think about that. If we educate women on the front end, they can make they can make informed choices that make sense for them. It may help them to avoid these complications. Okay. We know that um, in, in the context of reconstruction, there, there is a very powerful thing called intellectual leverage. And so when you talk to me or you talk to any other expert, and if I have a bias built in, I can lead you down a road that helps you or encourages you to choose what I want you to choose. And so have to be careful of that. People need to know about intellectual leverage, need to recognize it when they see it, and they need to do their own homework. And we need to know that not every surgeon is the same, and that experience breeds better outcomes. There is a, a recent article uh, uh, that, that, that came out, it's from CNN, uh, Dr. Out of Detroit. Uh, looked at complication rates and things of that sort, bad outcomes, and what are they about? All doctors with degrees and things of that sort should be, in terms of popular perception, equal. We all have credentials. We all have diplomas on the wall. So why are there differences in, bad, in outcomes, bad outcomes, great outcomes, and everything in between? And they looked at hernia operations. And they found that doctors who performed 600 or more of those in a year had around a 1% recurrence rate compared to the 10 to 15% average. Mm -hmm. And that 15% of the total number of operations performed by a lesser experienced group produced 32% of the overall complications. What does that tell us? That tells us there's a human element. Mm -hmm. And so to, to give yourself the best, there's no clearinghouse. There's no completely objective information source. Mm -hmm. Breastcancer.org is doing a tremendous service to the community by hosting 
podcasts like this, by the voluminous information that is deep inside your website. But there is otherwise very few in terms of resources for women to go and say, okay, let me look at my doctor. Let me see. What is he about? Mm-hmm. Ask to talk to patients who've had operations by the same provider. Uh, do your homework. Get on the Internet. Look around. Google things. Realize that um, there are uh, jacks of all trades and masters of none out there, and then there are overt masters. Mm-hmm. It's a terrific book. I'll give you a reading list. If you ever want to read a great book about mastery, Robert Greene has written a terrific book about that. Malcolm Gladwell has written a terrific book about that called Outliers. Mm-hmm. It's the 10,000 hours thing. It's the violinist who practices for 10,000 hours and then is suddenly regarded as a genius. It's the time you don't see Tiger Woods on the driving range that gets lost when you watch the wonderment of his golfing ability. And the same thing applies to surgery. And so think about that when you're choosing your doctor. Think about that when you're taking in a set of recommendations. You have to be your own advocate today. You just do. And you have a great resource. The Internet's a terrific resource. And women who've had treatment within the same center or under the same care provider are an even better resource. So seek them out when you can. Along those lines, would you recommend that a woman um, talk to several different plastic surgeons and uh, see what that person's specialty or sort of intellectual bias might be before making a decision? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. Now, here's the qualifier. Very often in the hurricane that is a diagnosis of breast cancer, you can get lost. Yes. You get lost in the multitudes of opinions, family, professionals, TV, media, magazines, internet. You get lost in the turmoil that is uh, a life-threatening diagnosis. Um, it all can become a whirlwind where you just say, you know what, I just want to have the mastectomy done and the treatment done, and I'll think about reconstruction later on. Mm-hmm. Whenever I see, I see that, very, I'll see it, I'll see it next week in the clinic. It's, it's, it's an almost all the time thing. So we have to reel people back in and say, hold on, just before we make a decision, let's, let's think about things, let's consider multiple opinions, let's boil it down to its simplest common denominators. I always encourage multiple opinions because, again, the human element almost mandates a consensus. That's why in the first question we talked about a team. Mm-hmm. Talk about a collaborative team that talks back and forth. Well, even within individual plastic surgeons, there are going to be different opinions. And you have to ask, well, why do you recommend that for me? And if the answer doesn't make sense, that's okay. It just means that you need to go and get another opinion. You'll know your little voice will always tell you when you're getting information that makes sense and seems focused on on your best interest as opposed to any other secondary things that might be out there. Multiple opinions, do your own homework, try not to get lost in the turmoil and the hurricane that is the diagnosis. Do yourself a service by taking a time out, no matter how long that takes, an hour, a day, a week or two, 
It's not a 911 emergency. You've got time to think. You've got time to make decisions. Be sure you don't do a disservice for yourself by making a decision that produces regret after the fact because you'll live with that for life. Mm-hmm. Whereas the recovery of an operation that requires borrowing of tissue from your tummy or, or whatever else to produce a reconstruction is just a short window of time relative to the big picture. And taking that into account on the front end can often produce a lifetime of satisfaction and happiness with the outcome and uh, an overtly positive experience. I have a unique place in the breast cancer treatment world. I get to live on the encouraging side. I get to live on the, the, the reassuring side. I get to live on the side that is rebuilding, that is producing beauty, that is pushing cancer and its devastating effects back into the box a little bit. Mm-hmm. Giving women an opportunity to feel uninjured, to feel healed, to feel whole. I love being in that place, and I take it very seriously. And I, I think that we just have to do a better job communicating to make women aware of what can be done with modern surgery. We are far more sophisticated than just about everybody realizes. The ability to transplant tissue, the ability to recreate a breast on the day of mastectomy, one of the greatest benefits of immediate reconstruction and I hear this over and over and over again. I woke up from surgery, and I didn't feel like I lost my breast. Mm-hmm. I want to. I do want to go back to where you were saying that women should take their time, gather the information, make a decision. Because one thing that occurs to me now with the option for immediate reconstruction, and you know, gathering this team, which now would include a plastic surgeon. Um, in the past, it always seemed like reconstruction came later and you could make that decision later. And so you had to make your decisions about treatment, about what kind of surgery, lumpectomy, mastectomy. And now it's kind of pulling reconstruction in. So you're making yet another decision up front. And, but I really like what you said that, yes, there is time. And so I just want to reiterate that too. And have you say that again, that it's nothing that needs to be rushed. There is time. Yes, cancer is a life-threatening disease and can very well be, but there is time to make the treatment decision that is going to be right for you and your individual situation. Absolutely. Uh, That is, if there there is any big takeaway message from our time together today, it's that. You need to be your own advocate. You need to take a time out. Don't necessarily follow along with advice that doesn't make sense to you. Seek multiple opinions. If it means you have to travel out of your hometown to get it, do it. Again, this will be a small window of time. Your treatment overall compared to the rest of your life, living with the decisions that you've made. And the truth is that with modern technology, almost every single time we can produce a lovely outcome, a beautiful result that is a lifelong thing. So it's important for women not to get swept into that mental and emotional turmoil, even though it's almost unavoidable. Just Mm -hmm. give yourself a moment. Take a breath. Take a deep breath. Sit in a quiet space. Go out and take a walk in the park. Whatever it takes to recollect yourself, and then come back to the table 
and analyze things and make sure that what you're hearing makes sense. Also, remember that we have built into our own psychology, me, you, and everyone listening, something called confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is we tend to seek out advice and opinions that agree with what we already think inside. Mm-hmm. So when we hear someone say something that we kind of already agree with anyway, we tend to agree with them almost instantly. When we hear someone take the opposing opinion that it doesn't necessarily agree with what would be uh, termed our preconceived notions, um, it's sometimes harder to take in and sometimes we don't hear it and sometimes we don't listen carefully enough. Well, especially if you're upset because you've just been diagnosed with cancer. So it's hard to take in a lot of things. Exactly. So give yourself the service of time. Give yourself the service of uh, the even calling different offices. You can often do uh, a, a communication with a, a surgeon or a caretaker just by phone. Okay. There are many surgeons and caretakers who are very willing to do things like that. Uh, sometimes face-to-face is, is better. Looking mm-hmm. someone in the eye is, 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 a, is a re- the beginning of a relationship. And so, um, you know, I, I value uh, women who take the moment to come down, and, uh, go to all the trouble to fly to New Orleans to meet me, and it gives me the opportunity to, to sit with them and to kind of uh, read where they are and to break things down for them. Mm-hmm. And then to go into the exam room and let them help me sh- show what we can do. Look in the mirror together. Where do we want to go with this? Here are the here are the six different things we can do. Here here are the top three. I'll rank them for you. Now you tell me what you prefer. Let's see if we can come up with a recipe that you and I work together to create. I tend not to be, and I think uh, modern physicians I, I hope are moving towards uh, a separation from that that dogmatic godlike expert in the white coat. It is how I say it is. Here's your protocol. Have a nice day. I hope that we are getting better in terms of the way uh, we talk to people and realize that, that this, is, this is important and it demands the same level of attention that, that any ter- terrifically important decision in your life uh, mandates. And, 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 and we as surgeons and caretakers, we can help. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Delacroix, thank you so much for joining us today. There are probably 500 more questions I'd like to ask you, but we just don't have the time right now. You do have to promise me that you will come back and be a guest again, and we can focus on some very specific topics because I'm sure our listeners would love to hear more from you. Absolutely, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.